Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 103 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice. We provide advice and assistance to employers and employees on all aspects of employment law. Now, in this week's episode, I've been doing a bit of research and a bit of reading myself For those of you who've listened before, you will recall that I explained that you can now read employment law judgments online. And so on the .gov website, you can find and search various judgments. And for the first time, I've really delved into it and had a good look through with a view to providing you with a couple of cases that have been decided by employment tribunals at first instance so that you get a flavour in relation to unfair dismissal of the kinds of things that employment tribunals consider and look at when they are determining cases that are brought against employers. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. As I say, for the first time, I took some time out to actually delve into some of the judgments that have been put online. I have looked before, I've done a little search for employers' names to see what comes up and just had a view to see what kind of information you can get on the website. But for the first time, I went through a number of cases. So I searched for unfair dismissal and I just focused on cases that have been decided fairly recently or where the judgment has been published fairly recently. And I had a couple of observations, really, which I'll point out to you and you'll see if you go on and have a look yourself. But in a number of cases, you will just find the judgment. So it could be very short, just the decision. So I have the party's details and the decision. And there aren't many on there that I was scrolling through anyway, that had the full reasons and the full reasons for the judgment on the website, So you can find out what the outcome was of a case, but not necessarily all the detail about it that comes with the reasons. So that was the first thing that surprised me. The second thing that I found surprising was that of the cases I went into, primarily that have been put up there, the judgment is for the last sort of six months or so, so for 2018, there are a large number where the cases have been struck out, unfair dismissal cases, this is, because the employee doesn't have the required two years service. Now, the first few I clicked on and I thought, oh, that's just a coincidence. But I would say that of the ones I looked at, there was um, at least double figures, maybe more like 15 to 20 judgments on there, where the employee's claim was struck out because they didn't have two years service. And I was really surprised by this, because if you're an employee submitting a claim for unfair dismissal, I would have thought that it's fairly obvious, you would know that you couldn't bring a claim with less than two years continuous service. Obviously not, there are obviously a number of people that are still doing it, but it did make me think about the fact that employment tribunal fees have been removed so that an employee can bring a claim without paying any fees. And I wonder whether this has led to people just putting a claim in just for the sake of it, or certainly those without having had advice will be doing this, you wouldn't expect somebody who's had advice from a solicitor, for instance, to put a claim in when they had less than two years service. But 
it just goes back to that scenario and the reason, or one of the reasons why tribunals introduced fees in the first place, which was to try to prevent the clogging up of the system with these cases that potentially have no merit. And clearly there have been a number of judgments this year where they had no merit at all. So it was just a point I'd make to you and I thought it would be interesting to point out whilst I was looking at it that it came up. And if you find yourself with a claim for unfair dismissal, for example, against you, and the employee doesn't have the required two years service, then you need to be making an application to the employment tribunal to have the claim struck out at a fairly early stage, and that the employment tribunals will do that, obviously, if there isn't the two years service. But it's just something to be aware of, just an interesting fact for you. So I've managed to find three cases that have been published online, which have been reported and which relate to unfair dismissal. So I thought I'd give you a quick rundown about them. And you can, of course, go on and have a look and read the judgment and the detail yourself if you wish to. And I'll put a link in the show notes, which you can find at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast forward slash 103. Now, the first case is a case that was decided by the Cardiff Employment Tribunal. And the employee is Miss Helen Evans. And the respondent, so the employer, is, I'm going to have a go at pronouncing this, Lanishinvuk Primary School. And Miss Evans brought a claim against the primary school for unfair dismissal and wrongful dismissal. And what I'm going to be focusing on is the unfair dismissal decision. So just to summarise the facts, Miss Evans had been employed by the primary school for approximately 22 years and it was noted that it was probably the whole time of her career as a teacher. In June 2014 there was a disciplinary hearing before a panel of governors regarding a number of allegations that had been raised against Miss Evans and this included allegations of her unsatisfactory conduct. Most notably allegations of bullying and intimidating behaviour from four members of staff. The outcome of that disciplinary was that Miss Evans was given a warning and the warning was placed on her personnel file for a period of six months, after which time it would have been disregarded for any disciplinary processes. So the warning was due to expire on the 11th of February 2015. On the 16th of February 2015, the head teacher, Miss Coombs, decided to instigate a second disciplinary procedure and investigation in relation to Miss Evans's behaviour. There were a number of allegations that were investigated, including behaviour which was incompatible with the conduct, ethos and precepts of the school, as identified by their own terms and conditions, etc. Unacceptable behaviour towards colleagues involved in the previous disciplinary proceedings a failure to follow managerial instructions, conduct resulting in complaints of distress and anxiety from colleagues who'd raised health and safety concerns, and a failure to modify her behaviour as identified by the previous disciplinary hearing. There were various circumstances that led to those allegations, and as a result, an investigation was undertaken. And this went on for quite some time. There was a substantial delay due to another issue that arose, which is set out in the judgment, but I won't go into here, but it was unrelated to the disciplinary allegations. Eventually, on the 13th and 14th of January, there was a disciplinary hearing. And what happened was, Miss Evans 
turned up to the hearing, but her solicitor didn't arrive to accompany her. And so the hearing started in her absence, as I understand it. Then when her solicitor did attend, they asked to come into the hearing. But because the hearing had already started, the school governors decided to proceed without Miss Evans being there. The outcome of the disciplinary hearing was that she was dismissed for gross misconduct and then subsequently appealed. There was an appeal process um, during which Miss Evans did attend the appeal hearing and was accompanied by her solicitor and there was a full rehearing of the situation which concluded the same outcome basically that she was dismissed for gross misconduct. Miss Evans made a claim for unfair dismissal and she alleged as part of this that the investigation had been predetermined that there was bias involved and one of the allegations that she raised interestingly was that the investigator had used leading questions to the witnesses when gathering the evidence in their witness statements. I raised that point because I thought it was interesting for employers to understand what the judge's thinking is and, and how they view investigations in the process and in the judgment it states that an investigation is not subject to the requirements of an examination in chief, as you would expect in a courtroom. So the judge endorsed the fact that actually it was fine for the investigator to use leading questions because it was related to what they were discussing and there wasn't that same level of requirement that you'd expect of a barrister, for example, or a solicitor cross-examining somebody in a courtroom. Helpfully, the judge sets out at paragraph 19 of the judgment what the tribunal have to have in mind when they're considering unfair dismissal. And I thought it'd be useful for you as an employer to understand the thinking and the process that's followed. And it states, as this is a conduct dismissal, there are four questions I have to answer. The first is whether the respondent has discharged the burden on it of showing that a belief in the misconduct was the genuine reason for the dismissal. So the first test that employment tribunal look at in an unfair dismissal case is... Has the employer discharged the burden of showing that they had belief, reasonable belief in the misconduct as being the genuine reason for the dismissal? And then it goes on to say, if so, they follow three what are known as Birchall questions. So Birchall was a previous case which set out the criteria for establishing unfair dismissal cases. And that is, did the respondent conduct a reasonable investigation? Did it draw reasonable conclusions from that investigation? And was dismissal a reasonable sanction? And that's where what's known as the range of reasonable responses test applies to those questions. So the tribunal analysed the case based on those points that are required to look at in order to establish unfair dismissal or not. The tribunal concluded that the investigation that was undertaken by the employer was reasonable. The person who had conducted it had done so with great thoroughness and diligence and in their judgment it fulfilled the basic task in that it provided a wealth of information to allow the subsequent disciplinary and appeal panels to draw their conclusions. So the tribunal judge was satisfied that the employer had undertaken a reasonable investigation. The judge then went on to decide that in their view the conclusion that Miss Evans was guilty of misconduct was reasonably open to them to make that decision and they had the relevant evidence before them to make that decision. Then finally, the judge states that as a result, in my judgment, the question of the fairness of the dismissal involves balancing the fact that in my judgment, the appeal panel had sufficient evidence before it to conclude, firstly, that the claimant had committed the misconduct alleged, 
Secondly, that it was reasonably open to them to conclude that this was gross misconduct. And thirdly, reasonably open to them to conclude that dismissal was an appropriate sanction with clear procedural defects outlined above. So there had been some procedural defects in the way in which the case had been handled. But looking at it from an overall picture, the tribunal judge decided that it had been a reasonable investigation, there was a reasonable process, and that the sanction applied, i.e. dismissal, was one which would be reasonable for the employer to conclude in all the circumstances of the case. And therefore, Miss Evans's claim for unfair dismissal failed because the employer had fulfilled all of the questions that are required in order to establish a fair dismissal. What is interesting about this case is that the investigation and the process had been going on for a long period of time. There were some clearly some errors in relation to how they conducted the initial disciplinary hearing and the fact that Miss Evans didn't have the opportunity to represent herself in it. And there were lots of other things muddying the waters along the way. But ultimately, the appeal had been able to correct any of those previous errors and that the school had made the right decision in reaching the conclusion to terminate Miss Evans' employment. As I say, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to read the full judgment and have a look at the detail there. The second case I'm going to talk to you about was a case decided by the Manchester Employment Tribunal this year. And it's one involving unfair dismissal, where the employer has asserted that the employee was dismissed due to redundancy. The case is Mrs. Hockenhull versus the David Lewis Centre. Mrs. Hockenhull claimed unfair dismissal following the termination of her employment after a restructure of her workplace by her employer. In short, various discussions took place between Mrs. Hockenhull and her line manager, Mr. Broderick, about changes that they needed to make to the shop that she worked in and the way in which the work was undertaken. There was a dispute about whether it was a true redundancy situation and Miss Hockenhall applied for alternative employment, so the new job role, but throughout this time maintained that actually the new job role was exactly the same as her old job role. Now when looking at the circumstances of the case, the employment tribunal decided that it was unfair to dismiss Miss Hockenhall and the reason being that One of the fundamental aspects of a redundancy exercise is a proper, fair and reasonable consultation process between the employer and employee. What they said was, and this is at paragraph 12 of the judgment if you want to have a look, in the opinion of the tribunal, this was not present in the meetings which led to the dismissal of Miss Hockenhall. Mr. Broderick had a closed mind even before the first meeting. He had, in his own words, decided that this change had to be implemented. It was not a proposal or a suggestion. So therefore, in order for consultation to be fair and reasonable, it's essential that the respondent approaches the changes with an open mind. So although the tribunal accepted that it was a genuine redundancy situation in this circumstance, because Mr. Broderick hadn't gone through the necessary and required consultation process, with Miss Hockenhull, and he'd just had meetings with her to tell her what was happening once he'd already made up his mind, they decided that the dismissal was unfair. And in their defence, the employer said, well, we we said it was proposed and we used the word proposing, etc. in our correspondence with the employee. The Employment Tribunal weren't convinced by this and said that it felt that actually the 
wording in the correspondence didn't reflect how Mr. Broderick was feeling and about the decision making. So after analysing the circumstances and deciding that actually it was an unfair dismissal, the tribunal then went on to decide that actually, despite the fact that Mr. Broderick hadn't undertaken the consultation process, it wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome for Mrs. Hockenhole. And in fact, her employment would have ended anyway. So even though there was no fair and reasonable process followed, if there had been, because the outcome would have been the same, Ms. Hockenhole wasn't awarded any compensation. The Employment Tribunal applied what is known as the Polky Principle, which is where even following a fair and reasonable process would have made no difference. Then the Employment Tribunal are entitled to reduce compensation by a percentage that they feel is right in the circumstances. And in these circumstances, they applied a 100% reduction in compensation. And the reason being for this is that they concluded that there wouldn't have made any difference at all. So it wouldn't have lasted any longer. The consultation process wouldn't have taken any longer. So Mrs. Hockenhull wouldn't have been in employment any longer. She'd received all her statutory redundancy pay and her notice pay, etc., And therefore, she wasn't entitled to receive what is known as the basic award for unfair dismissal. And because of the Polky reduction, they decided that she wasn't entitled to compensation. So it's an interesting illustration, again, how an employer's failure to follow the procedure can lead to a finding of unfair dismissal. But if it would have made no difference at all to the process and the outcome, then they will reduce compensation accordingly. In addition, just to note, Miss Hockenhull's claim for age discrimination also didn't succeed. The third case that I want to talk to you about is a another unfair dismissal claim and this time it's in the East London Employment Tribunal and the claim was brought by Mr Maguire against the Department for Work and Pensions and the hearing took place on the 16th to 18th of May this year. Now Mr Maguire was employed by the Department for Work and Pensions in their Access to Work department and he'd been employed from November 2001 until his employment was terminated in May 2017. Terminated in May 2017. Now it was agreed between the parties and accepted that Mr Maguire had a disability, which was, again my terrible pronunciation, I'm sorry, ankylosing spondylitis. Probably not saying that right, um, but it's shortened to AS. So he had what is a physical impairment that affects his mobility. So it was accepted by all parties that he had this disability. And in 1999, so before he started working for the Department for Work and Pensions, he applied for and was assessed as being eligible for disability living allowance. So he continued to receive disability living allowance whilst he was employed. And in July 2016, the Department for Work and Pensions instigated an investigation against Mr. Maguire following an allegation of fraud. So they put in place covert surveillance on him um, and videoed him and his movements, etc. And eventually interviewed him under caution. The outcome of the investigation and his interview was that all the facts and circumstances were put to a decision maker at the DWP in the Disability Living Allowance Department. And the decision maker decided that he wasn't entitled to disability living allowance anymore because of what had been found on the video and as a result of the investigations 
So on the video, it had shown him apparently walking for long distances and moving around freely without crutches. And in particular, there was a period of time when he was seen and recorded walking around for long periods of time playing the Pokemon Go game. So he was using his hands to play the game and walking around a lot. And they calculated that actually he'd been moving for quite some time without rest and rest breaks which was contrary to the assertions that he'd apparently made in relation to his abilities when he'd initially claimed disability living allowance. So the decision maker, in relation to his benefit claim, decided that he had failed to report a change in his circumstances, namely that his mobility had improved. And as a consequence, his disability living allowance was stopped. As I'm sure you would understand, the whole thing was referred to his department and his line manager within the Department for Work and Pensions and the disciplinary element of it was placed on hold whilst Mr Maguire was going through an appeal in relation to the disability living allowance decision. His appeal was not upheld and the matter went forward for disciplinary and as a result in May 2017, Mr. Maguire was dismissed for gross misconduct, namely bringing the Department of Work and Pensions into disrepute. The Employment Tribunal looked at all of the tests and questions I referred to earlier in Miss Evans's case. So they looked at whether there was a genuine belief by the DWP on reasonable grounds and which they had followed a reasonable investigation. And the Employment Tribunal was satisfied that they had. They then looked at whether it was a reasonable sanction, i.e. dismissal, and was within the range of reasonable responses in all the circumstances. And the tribunal agreed with the Department for Work and Pensions. They noted that there were a number of mitigating factors in Mr Maguire's case, most notably that the decision to remove his disability living allowance was a surprise to him, and that he'd been in receipt of it for so many years with no issues or problems, that he hadn't changed the way in which he had behaved or moved around at work and that he was always consistent in that regard. But ultimately, because it was a situation that had ramifications for the Department for Work and Pensions in relation to their reputation, it was reasonable to terminate his employment by bringing them into disrepute. Again, what was interesting about this was that there wasn't an allegation in relation to the disciplinary process that that he had committed benefit fraud but nor was there a finding that he was innocent in this so it was decided that his behavior fell somewhere in between being entirely innocent and benefit fraud and so that's why they didn't dismiss him for the fraud part of it but rather they decided to dismiss him because of him bringing them into disrepute and notably within their own disciplinary procedures it does say amongst the examples of gross misconduct, bringing the department into disrepute. The tribunal decided that whilst it was a borderline case, it wasn't unreasonable for them to decide to dismiss Mr Maguire because his conduct fell into the example of gross misconduct within their own procedures. So there are a couple of things to take away from that decision. Most notably, that the employer, the Department for Work and Pensions, were able to rely on within their own disciplinary procedures this particular issue about bringing them into disrepute and also the breach of their own standards. So if you don't already have a disciplinary procedure or some disciplinary rules, then it's worth having one 
set out so that you can include those details, particularly if there are things that are of importance to your organisation that might not be necessarily as important to another. And also that whilst Mr Maguire was accepted not to have deliberately misled the Department for Work and Pensions in his disability living allowance claim, it was still sufficient that the whole circumstances around the issue were enough to cause embarrassment to enable them to terminate his employment fairly. In addition to the points on unfair dismissal in that case, I found an interesting paragraph or a couple of paragraphs within which the employment judge made note of the witness evidence given by two of the witnesses for the Department for Work and Pensions. And this is something that comes up quite a lot in my opinion and in my experience. And it's something that I always warn my witnesses about when I'm preparing their statements or helping them to prepare their witness statements. And that is two of the witnesses had exactly the same paragraphs within their witness statements, word for word, including a spelling mistake. And this was raised and when asked, the witness said that the solicitors had completed the statements for her. Now, again, whenever I'm drafting a witness statement or helping clients draft witness statements, I always send it to them, make sure that it's in your own words and that it's exactly as you would want to say it and that it's a correct and true representation of your evidence in this matter. It's no good it being your solicitor's words And then when you're questioned about it, you say, oh, I don't know, my solicitor drafted it. Because then it just puts the evidence into question and it's frankly a waste of time. So in this case, the judge then went back to ask questions because the solicitors weren't in the tribunal at the time. The client was being represented by a barrister and there was various toing and froing. But basically, it was decided that it wasn't their evidence because it hadn't been prepared by them. And so it just took away some of the weight of the evidence. Fortunately for the Department for Work and Pensions, it didn't have a major impact because the decision still went in their favour, but it doesn't look very good. So just ensure if you're an employer or a witness in the employment tribunal, and you have staff who are witnesses in the employment tribunal, that the witness statement is a true reflection of what they want to say, of the things that they've experienced in their evidence, and that it's not just written by solicitors or legal representatives, because these sorts of things happen. I mean, cutting and pasting from one statement to another, which includes a spelling mistake, is pretty poor, in my opinion, both on the part of the solicitors, but also on the part of the witnesses for not noticing that and not fully reading and understanding their witness statements before they go to the tribunal to give evidence. So it's just another interesting point, something that, as I say, in my experience has come up before and I've heard witnesses say it and it's really cringeworthy. So make sure that the witness statements are your own. And then finally, on my trawl through unfair dismissal judgments, I found a judgment which was given in the East London Tribunal in January 2018 and it's the case of Miss Kiru versus Queen Mary University of London and in this case the details aren't given but basically the employee's claim for unfair dismissal did not succeed and the tribunal made an order that she contribute to the employer's costs The order was for £375 plus VAT. But the reason I mention it is because it's not very often that you find an employment tribunal judgment where 
they've awarded costs against the employee. And so I thought I'd mention it and I will put a link in the show notes. But just to say that obviously in some circumstances, tribunals are making awards for cost for the employer, although £375 plus VAT is not a huge amount. Um, It is something, I suppose, but another one to note there. So I hope you enjoyed this short focus on unfair dismissal judgments, illustrating exactly what's happening on the ground, what's going on in the employment tribunals and the considerations that they are making when they are deciding cases of unfair dismissal. As I say, if you want any more information, you'll find all the details in the show notes, which is at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast forward slash 103. And if you find yourself with a case or a potential case for unfair dismissal against you, or you find that you're dealing with disciplinary issues and you're not sure whether you might meet that band of reasonable responses, then it's worth getting some advice at an early stage. It's much easier easier to rectify issues when you're still dealing with them than it is to try to backtrack and explain to an employment tribunal later on why you didn't do something. So do get in touch if you want some advice. I do provide advice to employers and employees on all aspects of employment law. My email address is alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. Finally, before I sign off, we are recruiting, we're looking for a solicitor who would like to join our team at Real Employment Law Advice, somebody who has some employment experience but they don't have to be an employment solicitor, they just have to have some relevant experience either in the civil courts or in regards to business or commercial law. So if you know of anyone or you maybe are interested in a change of career or change of direction yourself, then do get in touch. My email is alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. Many thanks for listening and I hope you have a great week. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.